Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to, we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. Hey, hey, Las Vegas, I'm Crystal Heath. It's KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. 9.30 and 11.15 Sunday morning, 6 p.m. Sunday evenings, 7 p.m. Wednesday evenings are our service times. We would love to have you and your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, anyone you want to bring with you, bring them with you. Love to have you here with us for any of our service times. Can I tell you that we are just one month and a day but really just one month from our Christmas experience I am so excited and I know I know there are some of you out there who just don't understand the joy of Christmas and so you don't even want the word Christmas said until the day after Thanksgiving I ask you why why is this that we are not allowed to speak the word Christmas until the day following Thanksgiving. What is it that magically happens when the clock strikes midnight, Thanksgiving night, that now Christmas becomes acceptable? I do not understand. I, I simply do not. This year, however, I am lobbying. Usually we do Christmas music all day, every day. December 1st through December 31st, but this year, th since Thanksgiving is a week late, we may start the Christmas music a few days early. We may start the Christmas music on the 29th as you all are doing your Black Friday shopping so you can listen to it as you traverse the neighborhoods and the stores and stand in the long lines and get the great deals and spend $100 to save 50 Hey, we might be there for you. That's what I'm hoping for. We shall see. No guarantees, but I'm working on it. Working on it. But I am just, I'm so excited about Christmas, you guys. And I don't, there was some reason that I was telling you this. Because I wanted to tell you something about Christmas. I don't remember what it was. But it was going to be brilliant. It may come back to me at some point in the future. But one month till our Christmas experience. Yes, you will hear Christmas music today during this hour at some point because we are just helping ease you guys into it. Those of you that are like, there can be no Christmas until post-Thanksgiving. Why? Why is that? I just don't understand. I know you're like, well, it takes away from the Thanksgiving holiday. Does it? Couldn't it enhance the Thanksgiving holiday? Cannot both coexist? I mean, for people that's claim to be tolerant and accepting those of you that reject Christmas before Thanksgiving I feel do not fall into the accepting and or tolerant communities you just don't because if you hate Christmas you basically you just yeah I don't even know what to say about you but I'm sure I'll find something nice like yeah eventually and with time with time we might be friends but now is not that time. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Love you all. Appreciate you being here. 
Christmas is coming. Thanksgiving is coming first. I know Thanksgiving is coming first. And it will be amazing. I love Thanksgiving. And as you all know, because I've told you previously, Black Friday, the sales that happen, you're welcome. Those are because of me. What happened was several decades ago, a baby was born the day after Thanksgiving, early in the morning, and all the world rejoiced and said, we need to buy presents for this beautiful child. And the department store said, oh, that is a brilliant idea. So we will have sales on this day. That was, of course, me, the child that was born on Black Friday many decades ago. So you're welcome. You can think of me as you do your Black Friday shopping. I can send you a list of things that I would like for Christmas that will not be a problem. Okay. Today we are going to talk about playing with fire. Not actually playing uh, with fire. It's just a clever title. And I, you know, throwing that Christmas stuff in there is kind of playing with fire a little bit. Cause some of you are like, no, stop it, stop it, stop it. I have to eat my turkey first. Did you know there are people that don't eat turkey on Thanksgiving? I never knew this until last year. I just assumed that everyone ate the traditional Thanksgiving meal. And you say, well, what do you consider a traditional Thanksgiving meal? Well, have you never seen a Charlie Brown Christmas? No. <laughs> no, not a Charlie Brown Christmas. What is it? It's the Charlie Brown, the Thanksgiving one. A Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving Charlie Brown. I don't remember what the name of it is, but that's it. Like, that's what it's supposed to be. You have the turkey, you have mashed potatoes, you have stuffing, you have rolls, you have cranberry sauce, you have pies of a variety, you have cookies, and you have a green bean casserole and some sort of corn-baked dish, and it's delicious, and it's amazing, and that is Thanksgiving. I never knew that people in America ate things that, you, that aren't to be eaten on Thanksgiving Day. I never knew this until last year. Like, some people eat ham instead of a turkey. Some people eat ribs on Thanksgiving. Like, they have a whole barbecue theme going on. Like, I, I... That was my brain exploding last year. I was like, I'm sorry, you're having what food on Thanksgiving? Because all growing up, and I don't know if this is just like a Northeast thing, but I, I literally never met anyone who didn't adhere to the standard turkey meal Thanksgiving like what the pilgrims kind of did but it's really very different and I'll talk about that actually on Thanksgiving Day but um yeah very very different so I was just you know anyhow I don't remember why I am talking about this oh Christmas is coming poking the bear playing with fire all that so uh speaking of fire okay fire is raging in California People die from California wildfires every year. Beautiful homes are destroyed. Businesses left in ruins. Every year this happens, and every year we look at this problem. Firefighters go there from all over the country. We have uh, Las Vegas it has people there fighting the fires right now. And California's economy is just ransacked. You have just beautiful, beautiful property burning being destroyed and now what we see is what we see pretty much every year although this year the push is much stronger the the the, the story this year is that california what's happening there the fires we are doing this to ourselves climate change is making this happen and climate change and how we deal with it is the struggle that will define us
In northern San Francisco, there were 100-mile-per-hour wind gusts that doubled the size of the Kincaid Fire to 54,000 acres in a single afternoon. The blaze, the last time... Uh, let me see, when is this article written? The last I have... Uh, it was at 77,000 acres. That fire alone, just that fire, had destroyed 282 structures. It had was threatening 90,000 more. 200,000 people had to evacuate. And full containment of that fire was not expected until this week. The fire had been raging for several, several weeks. In Southern California, you had the Getty Fire, which consumed 500 acres, threatened thousands of homes. The Tick Fire, thousands of acres, devastating scenes of families, children, wives, moms, husbands, dads, fleeing for their lives. In the past few weeks, we have seen over a dozen simultaneous fires burning throughout the state of California. North, south, in between. Fire. Devastation. All throughout the state of California. And there are many people who are saying that this is the result of climate change. This is what we're going to have to learn how to deal with. Or as the New York Times uh, writers put it, a forecast for a warming world. Learn to live with fire. Basically like, well, this is what happens when we don't do anything about global warming. Which is interesting, considering that just last week on this program, I, I don't know if it was a Thursday podcast or maybe a different day of the week, but we read through an article together about how what the icebergs and ice caps are doing right now, experts are predicting we are just about at the point of facing another ice age. Meanwhile, the New York Times is telling us that the warming world means we must live with fire. And this is what we have done to ourselves by not actually dealing with climate change the way we should. Which does beg the question, what exactly are we supposed to do to prevent the fire? How would us changing what we do with regards to the climate prevent fire? The United States, by far and away, is not the world's worst polluter. It's not even close. The world's worst polluters live oceans away. And we're not gonna we're not gonna down them on this program today. That's not what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about why is this fire happening and what could we actually do about it. And I'm not I'm not an expert when it comes to fire. I'm not an expert when it comes to the environment. But I've done some research on this, and I'm just trying to smush it all together into a concise, understandable format. That's, that's what I try to do on this program, is to take big thoughts, big concepts, as much as possible, and break them down to where we can actually understand what's happening. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read these articles, I'm like, nobody's going to understand this. Like, the... You know, we, we, we talk about, and I, I say it a lot too, you know, we, 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 our culture reads the headline and never reads the article. And we make assumptions and judgments and, and tweets and Facebook posts based on headlines without actually reading the content of the article. But honestly, sometimes when you read these articles, you're left more confused than you were in the first place, going, what in the world are you saying is... I, uh, 
So that's what I'm going to try and do today. We're going to try and break down a little bit of what is happening with these wildfires. And, and, and is it the result of climate change or is there something that we could actually do? And I, I'm not saying that we can't do anything to, to, to work with the changing climate or the climate isn't changing. As I've said many times on this program, the climate is changing. The climate has always been changing and the climate will always continue to change. Seasons come and go. Uh, heat and cold ebb and flow. It, it, this is what has happened across our globe since its inception, which I believe in a, in a biblical creation account. And I think that that falls along the lines of a genealogy. I think that when the Bible says God created the world in seven days, I think that means God created the world in seven days. When it says that Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, I think that means Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. You can argue about that. We can debate that another time. But that's what I believe. And so I believe that in the... And I believe that's a, that's a, that is a biblical uh, account and a biblical position to hold. We can differ on that, but that is what I believe is the biblical uh, position, and as a Christian, I believe all of the Bible is true, and so that's why I hold uh, to that opinion. I also believe that science supports it, but again, another topic, another time. All throughout recorded history of the world, whether or not you accept a biblical creation account or not, all throughout the recorded history of the world, we have seen temperatures rise and fall. We have seen the climate change from decade to decade, from century to century, millennia to millennia. We have seen colder temperatures, warmer temperatures, colder temperatures, warmer temperatures. This happens. But is, the, the, is there something that we should be doing differently as a country? There are many things we could probably do differently. But when it comes to California specifically... California is quite probably the most liberal, the most leftist, the most democratic controlled state in the nation. And I say probably, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it is. But since I'm not 100% sure, because I didn't look up the statistics of, 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 of percentages of local government and county governments and all that versus a state like, say, New York or New Hampshire, I, I, I'm not going to say that it is, but it, it, it is one of the top ones, we'll say. California, however, has some of the most stringent air quality standards in the world. Forget in the United States, in the world. California, because of their stringent air quality standards, has caused a great deal of manufacturing to move out of the state. California then imports back those same things that they exported because they were polluting the air. Uh, <laughs> and in the long run, by importing them, the, the actual emissions net effect is it higher because they are importing these goods than if they were just making them there? But that's that's another thing. California, California, it's from California. In the early nineteen nineties, environmentalists were very concerned about the spotted owl. Now, I love animals. 
I love animals so much. I have nothing against a spotted owl. I think a spotted owl is pretty cool. But environmentalists were so concerned for the spotted owl in the 90s that they convinced the Clinton administration to stop federal, well not to stop, but to, to greatly reduce the amount of timber that was being harvested in the western United States and in California logging activities in the state were drastically reduced and employment in California's forest industry in the 90s was cut by more than 50%. And if you look at the data from the U.S. Forest Service, you can go, this is not something that I'm just making up out of nowhere, you can go to the U.S. Forest Service, uh, let me see if I can pull, look at the, you can go to fia.fs.fed.us, and then you're going to look for their Forest Resource Facts and Historical Trends brochure, right? It's pretty extensive, it's 64 pages, but it's a, it's a fairly easy read if this is something that you're interested in. Again, I'm trying to take big things that we wouldn't actually usually read and make it understandable, okay? In their uh, report on forest resource facts and historical trends, you can literally look at the graphs that show what was being uh, harvested as far as timber in the western states and the correlation of fires in those western states, forest fires and wildfires like we're seeing in California. And it is very clear, just based on those graphs, you don't need to know anything at all about trees, you don't need to know anything about the environment, you don't need to know anything about a spotted owl, you don't need to know about the ice age, you don't need to know any of that. You can look at this graph and anyone, anyone can look at this graph and clearly see that when we stopped harvesting wood in the 90s, it's been, a, it's been, so in 1990, that's where you can, you can look at these graphs and from 1990 uh, to about 1996, 97, there is a drastic reduction in logging in western, in the western uh, states. In 96 it kind of levels off until the mid-2000s when, uh, when President, then President Barack Obama comes into office. When President Obama's in office we see another drastic reduction to where today uh, it's not even, like, it, it was roughly 5,000, I don't even know how to say this number, 5,000 millions of cubic feet I don't, I don't, I'm sorry, I'm, I don't know how to, I don't know how to put that into words. It was just such a huge number um, of forest that was harvested prior to 1990 to where today it's less than 2,000. So m m significantly more than half of the logging that we used to do is what is done today. Here's what happens. If you do not continue this process of logging, what? Okay, so let me let me put it this way. I grew up on a farmette in central Pennsylvania. So, if, for those of you that aren't familiar with Pennsylvania, the word Pennsylvania literally means 
Penn's Woods. So William Penn was the guy that founded Pennsylvania. Essentially, the king of England owed William Penn's family and was like, here, let me give you this massive swath of land in the new world as payment to your family. And then William Penn created what he called a holy experiment. It's really, really cool. The history of Pennsylvania, I think... Yeah, I, I may be a little bit biased because William Penn is one of my uncles, but I think that the history of Pennsylvania is unparalleled in this country. I don't know the history of every state, but the history of Pennsylvania is really pretty amazing. And what he did uh, in the state for religious freedom and bringing persecuted religious uh, groups and people into our country really just incredible. But anyway, so Pennsylvania means Penn's Woods. So they gave the the king of England gave the land to William Penn. It's named Penn as in William Penn Penn's Woods because Pennsylvania is largely woodland. Interesting fun fact for you, Pennsylvania also has more uh, fresh waterways. So more springs, more streams, more water than any other state in the United States except for Alaska. So that's kind of really cool. Unlike uh, living here in the desert. It was kind of a shock when I came here. You know, you grow up by streams everywhere, lakes, water. And everyone thinks, you know, it would be like Michigan, Wisconsin, the great state, the great lakes states that have the water. No, it's in Pennsylvania. The springs. I think my parents' land had five springs on their land. So water's not a problem there. And then I come here and live in a desert, water's a problem. Anyway, so I grew up on this farmette and we had farmland. So like your, your rolling grass. About half of of their land was the, the rolling farmland that you would think of if you were picturing like Amish country in Lancaster County. But the majority of Pennsylvania is not that way. Uh, while there is that good farmland, a lot of it is woods and woodland. And so the other half of their property was woodland. Well, my dad built our house up on the hill in the woods. So he cleared out... I don't know, probably four or five acres of the woods on the top of the hill. He built a house, built a yard around the house, built a barn, and then uh, fenced in an area for the, the goats that we had in the woods. And goats, by the way, are fantastic at clearing out brush and shrubbery and woods. They can eat poison ivy. You can drink their milk if they eat the poison ivy and develop an immunity to poison ivy, which is really pretty cool, but it only works if you start when you're a kid. Anyway, we also when this was going on, we cleared out a lot of the old trees, big, the trees that we didn't want in the one side area. And then that was eventually going to become a horse area. So we left a lot of the really nice, or well, really all of the nice, big, healthy trees. We left all those and just cleared out the, the ones that were taking the nutrients and uh, not going to make it or not doing well, cleared those all out at the same time, left the big ones. So it was still foresty, so there's the yard, there's the house, there's the barn, there's the goat area, which is all brush because the goats are going to go in there and eat that whole thing, which they did. Uh, and then there was this other area that was meant for eventually horses, and we left just the big trees. Well, we never actually got the horses, and the goats never were in there. They were always in their pen. And in a process of time, and it wasn't very long time, what you have happen is if you clear out like that and then you don't continue doing something with it or, or replanting more trees or, or doing it, developing it, do something with the land, then brush and uh, it, it just it turns into nasty woods. Okay, You get thistles, you get brush, you get all kinds of just junk that you don't want to have to deal with. You get... You get a tree density because you you have the seeds and you have the saplings and you have just just m 
tons of trees, tons of brush. It's unbelievable. It, it's like, I, I think statistically, if you clear out like that and then don't do anything with it, you get three to four times the tree density that would be healthy in, a, in, a, in, a, in any given land area. Okay, so that's what happens when you don't clear out forest, when you don't log, or when you log and then stop logging. You get this massive tree density and all this brush. Well, guess what happened in California? Besides fire, what else has California been known for when it comes to natural disasters and so forth? drought and bugs and because California's regulations and because literally because of tree huggers we stopped logging we left this massive massive swaths of land that would now be overgrown with brush and tree density beyond anything that's even remotely healthy for the for for that land literally bad for the environment okay we're like we're not going to cut down the trees because that would be bad for the environment no it's bad for the environment to leave them there like the good healthy trees can't grow if there's so much density so we we create this problem of where now we have uh, this inevitable accumulation of brush and tree density and then you have drought so now you have just massive amounts of trees that aren't getting the water that they need now you have dry wood what kind of wood do you normally put in a fire we may not again <laughs> this is something that's very commonplace if you grew up in a place where there is cold and you live off of a wood furnace but for those of you that don't know Wood that is not dry does not burn well. The drier the wood is, the faster and better it burns. Okay? Not only do we have dry wood because of the drought, but because you have such high tree density, your trees become stressed. Your trees aren't getting the nutrients they need, and that makes their bark vulnerable to beetle infections. Uh, not infections. What am I thinking? Not beetle infections. What's the word? Starts with an I. Infestations. Beetle infestations in the bark. So now you have literally millions upon millions of trees, most of which that shouldn't even be there and wouldn't be there if we had continued our logging practices properly. You have drought making these millions of trees dry. You have bugs that enter the dry trees that have been growing because we stopped our proper logging practices. And then regulations, environmentalists, politicians refusing to allow the harvesting of trees, logging trees, or any sort of clearing because, you know, it's going to harm the environment. And, and basically what you have is you have a forest of matches just waiting for the slightest spark and... <laughs> In 2012, the U.S. Forest Service estimated that 77 million acres, almost entirely in the western United States, were at risk of fire due to insects and disease. Horrific forest management. 
is what has led primarily to these wildfires. It is about the climate changing. And it is about man-made climate change, but it's not the kind that we think of. It's not the climate change that happens because we cut down the trees. It's the climate change that happens because we have not been cutting down the trees. Because we don't want to mess up the forest. We are messing up the forest and the entire state and ruining people's lives and businesses and livelihoods. It's unreal. The unintended consequences of, of noble ideals without the education to understand what's actually happening. And I want to read to you who wrote this article. Uh, there's part of an article that's fantastic. A form, it was written by a former California legislature, legislature, legislator who is now the vice president of, at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He wrote an article in Forbes titled, Wildfires Caused by Bad Environmental Policy Are Causing California Forests to be Net CO2 Emitters. And it's a, it's a very lengthy article. But I'm, I just want to read you part of it because he puts into professional terms, but in a simple, understandable way, what I'm trying to communicate here. All right, so we're going to go with him here. Uh, in an interview, this is what he wrote. He said, in, and I'll tell you when we're, we're done with his, with his piece here. He said, in an interview four months ago, Newsom said, that's the governor of California, Newsom said that there are hundreds of millions of dead trees in the state and that it cost his father $35,000 to clear a small little patch of dead trees on his property. Newsom didn't admit it, but the outrageous cost to remove a few dead trees from private land is a consequence of California's Byzantine environmental regulatory patchwork. This is California's big secret. It's not climate change that's burning up the forests, killing people, and destroying hundreds of homes. It's decades of environmental mismanagement that has created a tinderbox of unharvested timber, dead trees, and thick underbrush. This dangerous situation attracted attention from President Donald Trump, who during the height of California's wildfires last year, insisted that there is, quote, no reason for these massive, deadly, and costly forest fires in California except that forest management is so poor, unquote. The irony is that forest management is so bad on public lands that a new report ordered by the California legislature in 2010 shows that the portion of California's national forests protected from timber harvesting is now a net contributor to atmospheric carbon dioxide due to fires and trees killed by insect and disease. So pause his article. Let me translate. We literally have more emissions from fires in California due to the trees not being harvested than we would have had had the trees continued to be harvested. And by the way, the trees will replenish. But another story, another time. Back into the article. Every year, about 3.8 billion board feet of new timber grows in the Golden State, capturing almost one metric ton of CO2 per acre in the productive timberland areas. Trees grow until they die, burn, or get harvested. If harvesting declines, tree mortality and fires increase. It's the tyranny of math. And now he gets into what I was talking about earlier. He writes, in the early 1990s, a series of restrictions were placed on logging in the West to protect the spotted owl. As it turned out, nature was more complicated than expected, with owl numbers continuing to decline even after the California timber harvest plummeted due to predation from other raptors. They were being eaten 
by other animals that we were protecting. In the meantime, the harvest fell below the growth rate in the 1990s to about 1.5 billion board feet per year over the past decade. The tree harvest on federal lands is now one-tenth of what it was in 1988, President Reagan's last full year in office. The California Forest Report draft concluded by observing that the current flux of CO2 may not be sustainable without forage man forest management while setting the challenge of aging of forests on federal lands. We're going to go, uh, we're going to skip down here a little bit where he says if federal and state environmental policies continue to make it difficult and costly to harvest timber and manage the fuel load, then the wildfires will continue and they will be bigger and deadlier. This will, of course, cause some politicians to blame the fires on climate change. In the meantime, the timber harvest infrastructure is less than one-third of what it was 30 years ago, meaning that even if politicians were sincere in wanting to manage the public forests, there are few people remaining to manage them. It is a tragedy for both California and our country that we have so warped the perception of how we make and preserve the environment our globe that we are creating bigger problems than we had in the first place. You know, God told Adam to fill the earth to subdue it. He told him to tend the garden, told him to take care of it. Sometimes taking care of the planet doesn't look exactly the way that many environmentalists would have us think that it does. It is better to harvest the timber. It is a replenishable fuel source. And it is good for the state, for its residents, and for the forest itself. If we harvest the wood. The other problem that is huge in this whole California wildfire issue is out of controlled burning. So... Here's what happened. Remember I was telling you earlier about how the area my dad originally planned to be for horses where I grew up. We didn't do anything with it for several years and so it became dense and brushy and unmanageable. You know what we did? Burned it out. We did a controlled burn. Brought in professionals that do controlled burning. Burned out all the garbage. The good trees were still fine. There are ways that you can you can do this to where the good trees are good and the the stuff that shouldn't be there burns away. And that's what we did. And literally for years after they did the controlled burn in that part of the property, that forest was beautiful. And eventually it grew up again because again, what we had intended to do with it, we never did. But controlled burning of forest is, is a natural thing that would often happen in places like California before all the regulations started and all the, the paranoia about fire. And, and I'm not saying that fire is, is a good thing in and of itself, but it can be used to produce good and it can be used to produce good even in forests and even in forest fires. So lightning strikes and things like this 
controlled fires or pre- controlled burns, prescribed fires, whatever you want to call them, a, a prescribed fire not only burns out all the non-native elements. So if you have non-native trees, a lot of times the native trees, they'll be fine. But you can use it to get rid of the, the trees and the uh, weeds and invasive species of plants that don't belong in an area That's that you can use. It also kills many of the bugs that shouldn't be uh, there. It exposes the deep, rich mineral soil. It enhances the ground so that the trees that are left have more nurturing uh, Ness, nurturingness in the soil, and it controls uh, competing vegetation until seedlings. So, so, so basically, you, you burn it out. This eliminates things invasive. A lot of times, invasive species or weeds or different things, so that the seedlings of actual trees you want to grow can take root and don't have to compete with this other stuff. It encourages the growth of native vegetation, and a lot of times. What we don't talk about is the fact that there are many plant and animal species that depend, their habitats depend on periodic fire. Does you, that's, that's, I know it's a, it's a crazy thing to talk about, especially when we see what's happening in California. Now, that is not prescribed fire. Those are wildfires. This is completely different. Prescribed fires, controlled burns are where when professionals go in, they set fire to a certain area on purpose knowing that they can control it and contain it in a specific area to deal with uh, different different uh, issues in any area that would be needing to be burned out because it's overgrown in brush or too thickly populated and it's uh, it's such an incredible thing I got to witness a prescribed fire happened in Pennsylvania game lands when I worked for the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and they took us out there and they taught us all about it. One of the coolest pictures I've ever taken on my phone and it was an old phone. But the smoke from the controlled fire and what those guys were doing and how passionate they were about it, it was absolutely incredible. Now they, usually these are done in times when it's wet. So when, when it's wet and then you're able to burn out the, the junk that shouldn't be there, the other trees aren't affected, and then you have you have nature come alive. Deer, dove, quail, turkey, just a few of the many animal species that benefit from prescribed fire. And I, I forget, they told us something about the acorns. Something happens with acorns during prescribed fires that is really, really cool, but I don't remember what it is. You can go and look it up because I don't have time to uh, right now. But the fire will help to manage weeds. It reduces the risk of wildfires because you're using a controlled burn to take care of the lot of the brush and the issues that would cause the regular uh, wildfire. And it's just it's it's a powerful tool that many states utilize to prevent wildfire. It's proper forest management. Proper forest management includes controlled burns or prescribed fires, whichever uh, you choose to uh, choose to say. Now, Sacramento, there is a there is a uh, a website called SACB. So SACB.com uh, had an article. When was this? In May of this year. Should California burn its forests to protect against catastrophe? I just want to read part of this to you because it's really kind of fascinating and it gives you a glimpse, just another look at what is happening in California and the why. 
okay? It seemed like a good day for a fire, the kind that could safely thin out an overgrown forest, eliminate combustible underbrush, and reduce the risk from an out-of-control wildfire like the ones that have devastated California communities in recent years. But when a lightning strike ignited a small fire on May 10th in the Tahoe National Forest on a relatively cool day and in an area still green from winter rains, federal firefighters did what they almost always do. They raced to snuff it out. The sugar fire in the foothills east of Sacramento was fully contained within two days before it could spread beyond 65 acres. Seven months after the campfire killed 85 people and destroyed much of paradise, and with another potentially catastrophic wildfire season getting underway, a growing body of experts say California is neglecting a major tool in its battle against megafires, the practice of fighting fire with fire. These experts say state and federal firefighting agencies should allow more fires that don't threaten the public to run their natural course. What's more, they say fire agencies should con conduct more prescribed burns, fires that are deliberately set under carefully controlled conditions to reduce the fuels that can feed a disaster. Nothing affects fire like fire, said Timothy Inglesby, executive director of Firefighters United for Safety, Ethics, and Ecology in Eugene, Oregon. He said if we don't start applying a lot more fire now, while conditions are still somewhat amenable to fire control, then years ahead, it's just going to be really an untenable situation. The Sugar Fire, an unplanned fire that ignited by lightning after a wet winter, was doing good ecological work for free, said Inglesby, a former firefighter with the U.S. Forest Service and National Park Service. He said later on, they'll have to put out another fire at a big expense. In California, the debate over prescribed burns is complicated by a deadly history with wildfires that have grown quickly out of control, the state's stringent environmental regulations, fear of liability lawsuits and infringement on property rights, and the huge swaths of federal forest land with their own management rules and oversight. So here's the thing. California is not conducting prescribed burns as they should. Because of their own environmental regulations, because they're concerned about lawsuits, because they're concerned about property rights, and because they are literally feuding with the, the Trump administration over this whole thing. Well, not, okay, I guess it's not a literal feud, because that would be pretty intense. Uh, it's a highly antagonistic situation, we'll put it that way. The president report threatening to cut off federal assistance because of the mismanagement of California, even though the federal government is also at fault here because the feds do manage more than half of the forests in California. But then California, according to the Forest Service, has overbilled the federal government on numerous occasions for a contract agreement that they have, and so the Forest Service has cut millions of dollars in aid to California. <sighs> We're not utilizing the prescribed fires or the controlled burns in California. We're not logging like we used to in California, leaving dead and dying trees to multiply, consuming the nutrients that they need, more nutrients than, 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 than there is to spare, filling our, the, the California woodlands with timber just ripe for burning. Is this preventable? Not all forest fires are preventable. They're going to happen. So like a lightning strike in a forest, what? that's obviously not something that we as humans can prevent. No matter what anybody says, 
God controls the lightning. If there's going to be lightning, there's going to be lightning. Accidents happen. Things happen. And there are some things that we can't do anything about. But there are other things that we can do. We can log. We can encourage more logging. And we can exercise prescribed burns. We can play with fire so that we don't have other people who are fleeing for their lives and watching their livelihoods and businesses and homes be destroyed in a wildfire. That's a summary of a very long, lengthy discussion on California's fire. So, what should we talk about next since we only have a few minutes remaining? Uh, let's go with this. Las Vegas. We'll bring it back to... Uh, bring it back to where we're at. Las Vegas has approved a proposal to allow you to pay for your parking tickets by donating food. I don't know about you, but I love this idea and it's definitely a route I would look at if I had a parking ticket. But uh, the city of Las Vegas is now saying you can pay for your parking tickets with food donations. The city council unanimously voted in favor of allowing parking tickets issued between October 16th and November 16th of this year. So you have a limited window to do this, but you can pay those parking tickets off with donations of food and now that food will be distributed to those in need this Thanksgiving and Christmas season. So if you have a non-public safety parking infraction in the city of Las Vegas, you can donate non-perishable food items of equal or greater value to the fine. To do this, you have to take those donations to the parking services office at 500 South Main Street within 30 days of your citation date. You must also have a purchase receipt for the non-perishable item. So you can't just raid your pantry and take this down there to pay off your uh, ticket. They want to make sure that what you're bringing them is not expired and that the value is actually equivalent to your parking ticket. But if you if you got to pay it anyway, why not help somebody in need this holiday season rather than just give the city, you know, 50 bucks or whatever. Donate it to those in need. It's a really cool thing. Here's another really cool thing. McDonald's is bringing back retro Happy Meal toys. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the company's first ever Happy Meal. And by the way, it was the Happy Meal that helped McDonald's achieve their standing as supreme in the fast food market. Today, roughly one in every four orders at McDonald's includes a Happy Meal. 25% of Happy or McDonald's orders include a Happy Meal. With a Happy Meal, you can, of course, get a hamburger or chicken nuggets and a side like french fries or apples and a drink. And then there's the toy. Some toys from the McDonald's Happy Meal have become collector's items. Some of the most popular toys that McDonald's has released in the past four decades will be brought back to Happy Meals. But you have a limited time to get them. Today is the day that it starts. Yeah, is it the seventh? Yeah, sorry, my calendar is messed up. Uh, anyway, so from today through, I think, Sunday? Monday. Today through Monday, November 7th through 11th, McDonald's is selling a surprise Happy Meal that includes throwback toys like the Thai Beanie Babies Patty the Platypush, the Tamagotchi, and various other toys. So, tap into the nostalgia. 
if you don't usually go to McDonald's and if you don't usually get Happy Meals, which I never do, but if I was going to or if I had kids, this is when I would actually allow them to get a Happy Meal because this could be really pretty fun. Surprise Happy Meals today through November 11th. Now, remember, not every McDonald's is going to do this, okay? So if this is the sole reason that you are going to McDonald's, I suggest you either call the store first if they have an actual person that answers the phone there, or uh, go inside and be like, hey, are you guys doing the surprise Happy Meals before you place your order so that your kids aren't disappointed and you aren't disappointed if you spend the money on a Happy Meal and then there's not surprise Happy Meal retro toy inside, okay? I tried to look up the list of where they would be. It's not in the McDonald's press release and I couldn't find it anywhere online. So I, I can't give you that information. But all I know is that there will be 17 different toys. Some of these really cool. Like I literally remember them and I'm really kind of excited about it. The Cowboy McNugget from 1988. Does anyone remember the Cowboy McNugget? I loved that thing. I can't even, when I saw the picture of it, I was like, oh my word. I remember that guy. I don't know how. Because I, my grandparents must have taken me because my parents didn't get us Happy Meals because that's not how we rolled. But I remember I had the Cowboy McNugget. I, that, I'm tempted to go get a Happy Meal. The other thing that they have that's really cool that I remember, there's like three things that I remember having as a kid. There's the, uh, the, what's, the Dino Happy Meal Box Changeable, right? It's the little thing that looks like a Happy Meal Box, but then you can like pull out the pieces of it and it turns into a dinosaur. Pretty, pretty cool. And then the 101 Dalmatians Disney exclusive toy from 1997. These are the toys that I remember. There's there's 17 different ones. I don't remember the other ones at all. But those ones I specifically remember. The Dalmatians one, the uh, the Cowboy McNugget, and the, the dinosaur changing Happy Meal box guy. It's really cool. So, anyway. You want a little nostalgia? It will be toys largely from the 80s and 90s that will be released in the surprise Happy Meals today through Monday. All right? Okay. That's all the time we have left for today. Thank you for tuning in. Always a pleasure to have you here with us. Hope you'll join us this Sunday, 9.30 or 11.15 for our Sunday morning services or 6 p.m. Sunday evening, 7 o'clock on Wednesdays. Our address, 6501 West Lake Mead Boulevard. And, of course, you can always find us online by visiting our website at experienceliberty.com.